Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is token northerner and pronunciation guru and commissioning editor... Thea Lenarduzzi. I realise that I've been not introducing you by your actual title. I know, so I, I, keen I am to <laughs> refer to you by your joke. Can titles. we just? Can I just be commissioning editor from from now on, please? I know, uh, I know, I know. I know. But... Okay, next 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 week. <laughs> I can't say foodie because you just said to me just now that you're not even a foodie. Well, I mean, in so far as being Italian, I would like to think that we all are what has become a fad here is just being interested in food, food and yeah. cooking well. And all so of you that, are you anyway. are a foodie. If it makes you happy, yes, I'm I'm a foodie. I'll see if I can be good next week. Coming up on the show this week, we have Elaine Showalter discussing her cover essay in the TLS this week on the misogyny that has been revealed in the American election. Pilloried Clinton is the headline inside as Showalter reflects on what has been the dirtiest, the most unpleasant US election in living memory. Continuing the horror theme this week before Halloween, we will consider the life of Bram Stoker, a man in the shadows of greater men, including Oscar Wilde. Jonathan Barnes has reviewed a new biography of Stoker and will join us to discuss it. Uh, The TLS this week has a special section on journals and leads it with a review of Index on Censorship, the body founded in 1972 to campaign against censorship and for free expression. Human Barikat has reviewed their last few issues and will be freely expressing himself with us. Finally, and picking up on a theme from the election campaign, is a review of two books by women about the sufferings of women around the world. How much progress has there been? Lara Fager will answer that for us. So to begin, you may have heard that the United States presidential election is limping to a conclusion, a campaign perhaps unprecedented in its nastiness, its aggression and its sheer incomprehensible weirdness is finally, thankfully ending. One political journalist said to me the other day that it might be the first presidential election where the loser will find themselves prosecuted and in jail within five years. But perhaps the most striking thing about this election is arguably its least important facet, that one of the candidates is a woman and one of them is a man. And yet this has in many ways been the dominant issue at stake. The election has, in the words of Elaine Showalter, who's read some recent books on Hillary and written an essay on her this week, become an epic battle of the sexes. More than that, it has become a sewer through which a vile gush of angry misogyny has poured with unremitting fury. How did it come to that and what does it say about American society? Elaine Showalter joins Thea and me now. Hi, Elaine. Hi. Why do you think this election became... Uh, as you put it, a a Manichaean struggle about gender, of all things. It's an extraordinary election in so many ways, but one way is that it really backfired in terms of its long 
simmering theme of Hillary hatred. I mean, Hillary hatred has been going on for decades, 25 years at least. It was all mounted up. They were ready to go. They were totally primed uh, when the election began. But what happened that was so extraordinary was that the more misogynist the campaign became and the more vicious Trump became, the more the issue of misogyny became debatable on the national stage. And this had never really happened before. So in a, in a, in a strange way, it was Trump who made it a debate of, about gender and power. He was the one who forced the issue. And at that point, quite late in the campaign, people were so angry and so fed up, really, what was being done to Hillary and what was being done to women, that a theme that a woman candidate would never have dared to introduce absolutely went viral. So I was struck whenever I've been to the States, why does everybody hate Hillary so much, or not everybody? Why does such a proportion of people seem to have this rather visceral feeling towards Hillary? I, I think in some ways it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. This discussion has been going on so long and with such virulence that everybody has read about it. And so many people who are not particularly well-informed believe in it. I've seen it crop up on social networks in the UK, where I've lived uh, for many years as well. I mean, people, in a sense, believe what they read. And there's so much out there that the assumption is, well, it, some of it must be true. Maybe not all of it, but some of it must be true. And she is not a spontaneous campaigner in the way that Bill Clinton was or that Barack Obama is. She seems stiff when you listen to her for most people. And people project on her, I think, an awful lot of antagonism that really doesn't have anything to do with her own history. I was in Portland, Oregon a few a few weeks ago and I was I was quite surprised to see how many people still have Bernie Sanders bumper stickers and flags in their yards. I mean, and these are mostly people of my generation, late 20s, early 30s, presumably the same voters who caused her to lose against Obama in 2008. How, how do you explain this? I mean, is it that the younger generation don't perceive this as a struggle between the two genders as much as they do an opportunity to stick two fingers up to, to the establishment? Or, I mean, why has Hillary failed to get to get that demographic on side? Well, I think that's changing. I mean, very late in the campaign, I think that really began to change. Sanders obviously, uh, you know, had a, had a very left-wing campaign. He said things that were very appealing to young people. He won a great deal of support as, as the kind of oppositional candidate who was saying new and tough things about the government. And it was very polarizing for a long time with young people. I think Sanders did Hillary Clinton a good deal of harm. I mean, I think he could have conducted just as vigorous a campaign without insulting her and abusing her, which he began to do. He said at first he wouldn't do that, but towards the end he said a lot of nasty things about her. That added to the kind of burden or what I call the chain that she drags around with her of attack and abuse. But I think it settled down after the, certainly after the convention. And it looks now, at least in terms of the polls and statistically, that people have come to terms with it, all except for the very hardcore, the Bernie brothers, who will never give up, that people have come to appreciate Clinton. And she's taken on so many of his issues. Uh, he did change her campaign. He changed her ideas and her policies. I want to go back to the misogyny, because I'm, I'm struck by the notion that, and its connection to sexual violence, which is which is so appalling. Has that always no. been there, do you think, Elaine? And actually, all we're seeing now, thanks to social media, thanks to the internet, we just have greater sight of it. Or is this a, a new phenomenon where it just feels that people, when they reach for terms of abuse, 
and they do it on social media particularly, they reach for terms that are suggestive of aggression, sexual aggression towards women, and that's what Hillary seems to be the victim of. Yes, that, I really think that's new. I mean, yes, social media has encouraged, you know, there's a good deal of laxity and there's a good deal of acceptance in social media, and that's really okay in and of itself. And certainly the misogyny has been there, you know, even before women could vote, the misogyny was there in the concept of a woman running as a candidate. But in this campaign, the it's not just misogyny, it is about sexual violence. And the attacks on Hillary by Trump supporters, and especially by the more extreme Second Amendment group, as they euphemistically call them, the armed ones, the ones with the guns, it's really, it's not only about killing her and hanging her, and locking her up, but there's always a sexual twist to it, how they're going to kill her. Um, one of the guys on tape says he wants to shoot her in the vagina and watch her slowly die. Now, that is a level of sexual violence that I think has never been expressed and maybe even even fought. How do you think the American public would have reacted if Hillary Clinton had, from the get-go, adopted a similar approach to someone like um, Julia Gillard, who, as leader uh, in Australia, kind of faced down Tony Abbott, the, the leader of the opposition, uh, and directly accused him of misogyny and ran through the, the list of comments and abuses that he had directed at her? How do you think... How do you think the, the public I think would have it would have been that? a real, I think it would be a real, real problem for you. I mean, there is so much scorn that's directed, has been directed towards women um, who raise the issue of sexism and confront it directly. And people would have said, cry baby, whining, mm. deflecting attention from your crimes, so on and so forth. They would have denied it. Really what Elizabeth Warren did yesterday when she um, made that speech where she sort of reclaimed the term nasty woman was, was a, yeah. very, a, clever, a very clever move. Yes, well, nasty women took off. The minute he said it, yeah. the T-shirts were out there, I'm a nasty woman and I vote. I mean, almost instantaneously, everybody said, that's it, that's <laughs> the slogan, uh, it's everywhere. So Elizabeth Warren you know, gave it a great rhetorical spin. But it, it had happened almost mm. immediately. And I think it's just amazing how Trump fueled a kind of language and rhetoric and open anger that had not been allowed to be expressed. Uh, he totally brought it on himself. And is that, because I was thinking, I was talking to someone about um, what it must have been like for Obama the first time as a, as a, as a black presidential candidate. Yeah. And, it, and it feels to me that the Republican opponent there, McCain yeah. uh, or Romney, what would have happened there is that any sort no, of race, I mean, any, any racist rhetoric against him would have been so far away from the mainstream as to be able to be recognised as uh, marginalised. But what Trump has done, yeah, which so I think... And it, it would have been it would have been utterly shocking. It would have been totally unacceptable. And there was a, a, a famous occasion where someone in McCain's audience cried out and said, Obama's a Muslim. And McCain said, no, let's stop right here. He is a Christian. He is a family man. He was, you know, and wouldn't allow it to be spoken. On the other hand, there was a, a, a moment at one of McCain's rallies where somebody said, what are you going to do about that bitch? And McCain said, that's a good question. Isn't that in? I mean, that that to me is, is, and I think what your piece illustrates is is very much this. You quote Hillary saying in July, "If there are any little girls out there who stayed up late to watch," this is talking about her convention speech. Let me just say, I may become the first woman president, but one of you is next. And one of the, I think the depressing things about your your thesis here, Elaine, is that it may be a long time before another woman wants to put herself through what Hillary has endured in this campaign. 
Yes, and you know the thing that that is so depressing to think about is that many of us think if she if she, if she wins, it's not over. Mm. Uh, we don't envy her the next four years. I think I think people are very grateful to her for having the courage to take it on, and the country is so grateful to her. The Democrats, anyway, are so grateful to her for standing up to Trump, and I think she'll be a really good president. But this abuse is not going to stop. It seems quite clear that if if she does get into power and then she fails, as all leaders oh. do, to fix everything for everyone. Um, yes. Will the country then that is so fiercely patriarchal, and you know we're talking about a country that I think has twenty female senators out of a hundred, will that then her failure then be pounced on as 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 because of her gender? Of course it will by the Republicans. I don't think by the Democrats. Um, but I think every president, you know, this is a famous honeymoon period. You get a little, uh, you know, a couple of months where people are very positive, and then then it starts to go the other way. And she will be blamed for everything, and the Republicans will blame her as a woman, as well as a politician, and inevitably something is going to go wrong. It's amazing to me that anybody would even want this job, this terrible job of being president mm. of the United States uh, in this century. And we just sort of, you know, hope that maybe there's a Democratic Senate that will make it a little easier for her. Well, just finally, um, uh, Elaine, you sort of start out by, by implying this. It's probably a good thing from a societal point of view that the people who are going to deliver Hillary the White House are the women of the United States of America. Because if uh, you refer to that Nate Silver graphic, where if only men voted, Trump would be president. And if only women voted, Hillary would be president by an inordinate amount. So effectively, if and when she does win the election, she will win because women have exercised their democratic right, which is possibly the first time in American history it's been uh, as, as definitive as that. Yes. I mean, they've made differences in, in certain elections, voting more for one candidate than, than the other. But this is the first time we've known ahead that if women voted a particular way, it would totally change the election. It's a very, very dramatic statement. And we shall see what, what happens. Uh, Elaine, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely piece. Pilloried Clinton is the headline of, of the piece, and it's on the cover uh, as well. Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for joining us now. Thank you too. I mean, there's an argument on whether or not she's going to be a good president. She may well be a one-term president mm. because the Democrats are now running on fumes. You would imagine they're mm. going to be the third. It's going to be the third term in a row, and then you're going to have, mm. presumably, the Republicans get their act together and don't have a lunatic at the head of them. Then she's going to be very hard yeah. for her not to be a one-term president. There's, there's the very real sense of the lesser bad. First between two, between yeah, two I think candidates. that's right. And, you know, if she wins, and I think she probably will win now, then she beat Donald Trump, and you've got yeah. to imagine any sentient person would be able to do that. Yeah, um, well, you know, let's see what happens. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Right, we'll move on. Keeping with the theme of horror, let us turn <laughs> this pre-Halloween week to the life of Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. Jonathan Barnes reviewed Something in the Blood by David J. Scarl, which purports to tell the untold story of Stoker. It focuses on the disappearing act that Stoker seems to have conducted with his life, as Jonathan puts it, spent largely at the edge of things, a liminal existence in which he was outshone by more charismatic men. Those men included the great actor Henry Irving, for whom Stoker worked, and more tantalisingly, Oscar Wilde. Stoker was a regular at the salons of Oscar's mother and married the woman originally courted by Oscar himself. Uh, Jonathan joins Thea and me now. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Do we think Stoker's one of these authors that's kind of been eclipsed by his own creation, that people don't really know very much or care very much about Bram Stoker? They care about Dracula. Dracula is the thing that sort of dominates everything when you think about it. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, even more so than, you know, what Sherlock Holmes was to Conan Doyle. I mean, Dracula is by far the best thing Stoker ever wrote by, you know, absolute country mile. And yes, his fame has utterly eclipsed 
um, Stoker's own life. Although, you know, there were, as with Mary Shelley, you know, there were lots of points of interest in, in his biography. Do you think he's a great writer? I mean, funnily enough, we've done a recording for Halloween of stories and I read a bit of Dracula and it's sort of very charmingly schlocky. It's very ham horror. Yeah, it's become, you know, it's particularly... And it's Maybe even, that's because I can't dis- dissociate the the various kind of afterlives that it has had yeah, from it, the original pro- uh, work. Yeah, so we always associate it with him. Do you think he's a great writer? Do you think Dracula is a great book? I think those are two separate questions, yeah, okay. really. Whether, I mean, I don't think you could honestly argue on the level of the individual sentence, you know, that Stoker is a great writer. You know, at the same time as, as he's writing Dracula, Conrad's writing Heart of Darkness, you can't necessarily <laughs> put them together. But I do think Dracula is a great book for similar reasons as I think Frankenstein is a great book in that they just have this kind of weird enduring power that yeah. um, goes far beyond the original story i mean it's as though he created when well, he did really he created a myth he created a, a modern myth which has survived and more than survived thrived into the modern age it's almost hard to imagine modernity insofar as it considers issues of horror without dracula but it's so far i mean in halloween which is coming up, the iconography created by uh, Stoker will be everywhere, won't it? it it's, it's sort of become embedded in, in popular culture. Absolutely, and he invented a lot of it. I mean, a fair bit of it, of course, was already swirling around the zeitgeist in various forms. You know, it's this kind of second resurgence, isn't it, really, of the Gothic tradition when Stoker picks it up. I mean, this is stuff, to some degree, that was being mocked by Jane Austen in Northanger Abbey. So mm. kind of mocking it and finding it comical is not a new... It's not a new thing. But part of part of the reason for its endurance is the kind of the kaleidoscopic way in which it can be interpreted. It sort of can speak to whatever we want to project onto it. It can it can accommodate. Absolutely, I think there's an you know it's a, sort of paraphrase wild again. It is a kind of sphinx about a secret to mm-hmm. some degree, because whatever era you're in, and perhaps this is a mark actually of what makes a great novel. Dracula adapts and fits to the the modern age. You know whether it's fear of um, you know AIDS in the in the 1980s, whether it's um, a kind of Marxist reading of Dracula which fits very well. This kind of great blood-soaked um, aristocratic leech mm. that feeds off the invasion the poor literature invasion well. literature. Yeah. Um, you know, same time as War of the Worlds, another blood-sucking yeah. race. And uh, you you mentioned sorry you mentioned David Scow. You mentioned Wild. So that that in the context of David Scow's book, we should talk about that. What what is it that how does Wild figure in this absolutely well you, you just said quite correctly that you know dracula is a kind of um, almost a kind of raw shark test onto which we can project our own obsessions and interests and that's certainly what skull does his big thesis is this idea that stoker was essentially a repressed very repressed homosexual and wild represents this kind of doppelganger figure at once predatory and the kind of man he'd like to be so he very much positions kind of wild as dracula to um, Stoker's Jonathan Harker, and you buy that. I mean, um, the, the sexual. I mean, I mean, c- can you separate the two? Is it likely that a Victorian gentleman who seemed to have uh, lasting affections for men and a slightly unhappy marriage, you can perfectly well believe believe may have been suppressing his sexuality? Do you think it's one stage too far to then say, and of course, Dracula was wild and he had this uh, uh, unfulfilled longing for the most famous gay figure in sort of um, Victorian times? I think I'm probably politely sceptical. <laughs> of, of of the thesis, there's you know there's lots there's lots in it, but again you know these things never quite quite fit, and perhaps it's too simplistic and reductive to, to make so so sort of straightforward a reading. Because the life of I was very straight, I didn't realise the connection with with Henry Irving. He never seemed to do very much. Stoke. He was always in. You referred to the sort of liminal 
existence when you look at the life of his what do you take from it what do you do do you, do you see happiness did he have an, he seems to have a un, relatively unhappy marriage he he subsumed his existence in working for for henry irving was there much there when you read the book is there something there that you can see this this sort of a happy life or a, of a profitable life or was it just this was a guy in the shadows who produced one lasting great book i think probably probably the latter certainly not despite the fact you created this um great monster of english literature it's not an enviable life by by any means at all you know and you say you didn't um know about the the irving connection it's interesting how famous celebrity works you know in his lifetime you know he was only known if at all for being you know irving's factotum he um when he wrote a biography obviously a closer to a hagiography, really, of Irving. The reviews said, you know, how dare Mr Stoker put so much of himself? And all we want to know is about about Henry Irving. And Dracula didn't do very well when it was published for Stoker. The success came after his death. To some degree. I mean, I think that's often overstated because it makes a great story, doesn't it, to say that, you know, three men and a dog bought Dracula when it came out and then he died (laughs) and it it became huge. I mean, it, it it was outsold by many more popular books at the time which have now faded for sure uh, Jonathan thank you so much for, for doing it it's good that we got this in for Halloween there's a lovely picture of Jonathan Reese Myers as Dracula in 2013 sort of sinking his teeth in something that goes along with it but thank you for coming in today no, thank you Index on Censorship has been publishing a quarterly journal since 1972 with the purpose of documenting worldwide censorship and promoting freedom of expression. Taken together, its issues form a sobering history of our times and the repeated and sometimes successful efforts of various states across the world to prevent people from exercising that basic human right, talking freely, expressing opinions, challenging authority. It covers the fallout for free speech of the Cold War, the rise of militant Islamism, the new Russia and more. Human Cat has reviewed the latest four issues and given an overview of the publication's history. He joins me and Thea now. Human, one theme in this history is the obviously the pernicious role of the state in suppressing free speech. You cite a, a really troubling statistic that 46% of the world's population live in not free media environments. Is the history of Index on Censorship a history of the world getting better in terms of free speech or, or getting worse? That's a very interesting question, not least because the sort of early part of of the history of of, uh, Index on Censorship is is so deeply intertwined with the fight against kind of Soviet tyranny in particular. Quite a few of the kind of early issues focus primarily on issues to do do with what was happening in the the Eastern Bloc. If, 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 If you were looking at this at circa kind of 1990, You'd be forgiven for thinking things were getting better, but but one of the things that really comes up as it, when you, when you look at the the picture over the last couple of years and and the the, the stuff that they're co- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Covering in their journals, things seem to be getting worse. Um, you know, Turkey and Russia in particular fe- feature very, very prominently in, in some of the recent content. And there is this sense that actually that we are in a moment where things could go either way. So are they the two central villains, do you think, Russia, Russia and Turkey are the sort of villains of the peace currently? It's, it certainly feels that way. I mean, even before, I mean, obviously in the, the piece I've, I've, I've written on this, I've surveyed a few of the recent the issues of index on censorship that actually predate the July coup. And even, even before uh, the coup and the subsequent purge, you see this theme coming up over and over again of, of, of the suppression of, of free speech, the harassing of journalists, not even particularly kind of extremist journalists, but people who would, we would regard as essentially, you know, social democratic in, in political orientation or liberal. So it, it does feel that way. And of course, the, the problem is that that in turn, you know, feeds into the narrative that people like Putin like to push this idea that, that, that you know, they seem to want to kind of create a siege mentality, you know, the Western world is out to get us and, 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 and what have you and, and, and vilify us. But you yeah. also, I mean, you also mention an essay by uh, Jean-Paul Martos, I think it is, and he makes some interesting points about the, the de-skilling of journalism and the decline of support for proper investigative journalism, um, because cynically it, it, it doesn't make enough money for, for media companies, which of course adds up to censorship by, by other means. So does does he, in that essay, does he offer any, any hope or guidance on, on that point? I, I don't know. I mean, yes. I mean, I think, I think his criticism is something that the, the, the comments in his, in his piece are of um, of a nature that are probably applicable across the board and and including certainly in, in sort of liberal democracies. I mean, our problems here are mercifully of a, of a different order, but it, but they are problems nonetheless. And some of them, I suppose, they're linked really to sort of commercial pressures, mm-hmm. um, partly linked to sort of technological change and the cha- changing business models in uh, the journalism profession. Magazines and newspapers becoming increasingly advertising driven i think is perhaps a factor what he's talking about in that piece is a is an issue around quality control you know having a free press is all well and good but what if the writing's just not very good so it's this idea that that clickbait journalism or what he calls you know journalism the more that becomes the norm and the less serious critical investigative journalism we have than that sort of dilutes by default in a kind of slow and insidious way the quality of our public discourse. Which, which is a, a fair point, although whenever I, I hear this, and I think there is a large thing to be said about that, is that ultimately we live in a world where if you disseminate and distribute information, i.e. your Facebook or Twitter, you can make a lot of money. If you create... Uh, or investigate or report on information you can't make any money at all so the biggest companies in the world now are non-creators they are distributors which i totally accept the, the only challenge to that would be if you ever read a newspaper from the 1970s 
or the 1960s, uh, where it's supposed to be this golden age of journalism. They're incredibly slight, they're incredibly boring, they're incredibly badly produced. This notion of a golden age, everyone always believes they've just seen the passing of a, of a golden age. And I'm not denying this sort of the, the rise of clickbait journalism, which I think is a very fair point. It doesn't feel to me that if you go back into history, you look at the press, there was ever a re- really uh, sort of halcyon days. That's true. I mean, I completely agree. There's, there's never been... I mean, it, it goes back to the point, really, in the, the earlier question about, about you know, our, does it feel like the world is getting freer? I think all of this stuff has always been in flux. There's never been, there's never been a golden age, but equally, there's perhaps never been a dark age either. It's very difficult to sort of quantify. It's important for a publication like Index to have one eye on what's happening in Western democracies as well, because otherwise it can leave itself open to that that uh, accusation that it's just a kind of uh, you know mouthpiece for you know slagging off easy targets or whatever. Or, or, or the other one, and, and the other argument against, which is not true of Index, because I think they do great work, but there's a there's a risk that it slides into sort of just bien pensant liberal thinking. So you, you refer to this, I think, in the piece, the Charlie Hebdo controversy. Yeah where PEN America gives Charlie Hebdo, the French magazine, a, a free speech award, and many writers protested due to the fact that it's often Charlie Hebdo was a racist, unsavoury, divisive magazine. And there's sometimes a whiff, is there not, that free speech campaigners are most comfortable campaigning for people they agree with rather than people that they're appalled by? Yes, I mean, I, mean, I think that the, the Charlie Hebdo pen thing was, was I mean, extremely fascinating and very, very, very complicated and... Free speech is either something that's absolute or it's not. And the minute you start saying, well, it's qualified by a responsibility to, to not use it in, in ways that are, that are not sufficiently attuned to questions of structural racism within society, blah, 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 it's very sort of murky, murky territory well, by of, that point. And of course, what makes it so difficult is that, you, as you say, you have, we talk about freedom of speech in these absolute terms, but none of the, the terms that accompany it to define things like fair comment, satire, offence, mm. and so on, like, and so on and so forth, none of those are uh, absolute terms. They're all open to, to discussion as well, which is what makes it so impossible to decide, I think, t- how to feel about this. And, and as you mentioned, this... this absolutely, absolutely. On top, that, on top of that, I, I, was, I was deeply uncomfortable with the idea of implicitly uh, crediting the, the perpetrators of that atrocity with, with the sort of the mantle of being in some sense, you know, the spokespeople for, for the kind of, for, you know, the marginalised minority, uh, the minority of, 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 of French Muslims. I mean, that, that to me was deeply problematic. Well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great piece. Just, just, just lastly, we would say, wouldn't we, I think reading your piece, uh, you'd, you'd agree, that it's a good thing that Index exists. They do a good job in highlighting this stuff. It's Absolutely. important there's someone out there that, that is banging this drum. Well, listen, it's a great piece. Thank you so much for highlighting it and coming on to the show today. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank Thanks. you. That's Human Barricade. It's, it's interesting. You always get into this with free speech and it's absolutism or otherwise. The, the thing you always get to, though, is that free speech is only interesting when someone is saying something unpalatable. Mm. It's very mm. easy to, 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 to sit around and say, yeah, we all believe in free speech, right up until the point someone says something despicable and then the test of how much you value it because people always say i believe in free speech and then mm-hmm. they the word but mm. marches into the sentence mm. very easily and mm. sometimes justifiably i'm not saying it's right or wrong but it's very hard to, to get to past set that. the parameters and, yeah. and define what responsible use is and stuff did you um did you find that the 46 percent statistic did you find that surprising 
Yeah, I suppose I did. Although I, you question what constitutes a not free exactly. media. I, I don't know. I mean, would you would you class Britain as having a not free mm. media because there is forms of regulation in this country? America has no regulation. It has the First Amendment. So you imagine that's classed as a not mm. free. So I don't know what point. I'm yeah. sure we are classed as, as free, actually, and, and rightly so. Mm. But I suppose it's a very, it's a very, very fine line uh, would be my point between to censoring something and highly influencing something. So it, I immediately thought of Italy under Scorni, where you had, you know, of the seven terrestrial channels, you had six of them that were either owned by Scorni or uh, completely influenced by him because he was in power. So it amounts to the same thing. Yeah. And then you have a whole population who just has absolutely no faith in, in news and they don't buy newspapers and... Really? And so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think Italy has one of the lowest um, rates of uh, for buying newspapers and really? consuming news. I think if the state can shut you down, but then again, you see, you know, in this country, you have to have a licence to be a broadcaster. So, technically, you can the state can shut shut down ITV if mm. you wanted to, or Channel 4. It never would do, and there are, there are checks and balances in place, but there is always some form of structure over free speech and the extent to which it throttles it or allows it to, to breathe in and out, I think is is never as absolute as, as one might want it to be. Mm-hmm. We can move on. I, I, this is really important. I think this is the most shocking piece in the TLS this week. Lara Fagel has reviewed two books that consider the treatment of women across the world. The War on Women by the late Sue Lloyd Roberts, and This is the Place to Be by Lara Pawson. Sue Lloyd Roberts was known to her friends as the BBC's hopeless cause correspondent due to her commitment to documenting the most painful and insoluble problems around the globe. She spent much of her life cataloguing atrocities involving violence against women, and her book charts some shocking examples. These include the rapists in India who disemboweled their victim, blaming her for the sin of going out with her boyfriend in the evening. The schoolgirls in Saudi Arabia who burnt to death because they had to get appropriately dressed before fleeing a fire or the village cutter in Gambia holding down her own five-year-old daughter to mutilate her. Lara Pawson has reported on conflict throughout the African continent, especially Angola, and her book interrogates the nature of violence and its motivation. Is it part of a dark human compulsion that can never be denied is one of the questions that emerges from it. Uh, Lara Fagel joins Thea and me now. Uh, firstly, Lara, thank you for doing these books. They can't have been an easy read. No, they weren't. I had to take them both, particularly the Sue Lloyd Roberts in small doses, and found that I was frequently crying by the end of chapters. But it did. I'm pleased to have read them. They're both important books. And actually, I found that in a way they helped. It, it helped to read them both at once because... There's a kind of intensity with the Lloyd Roberts of hearing one awful thing after another without much breathing space. And with the Pawson, it's all about having having time to reflect and breathe. Um, let's start with the Sue Lloyd Roberts book. Those examples I, I gave, which you give in, in the re- reviews, the sort of horrific examples of violence against women and girls, is there something that unites them? Is there a central thesis that is being put forward here that unites them as, as, as to why they're happening or, 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 or how they could be stopped? I think if there's a thesis to the book, it's that over the, looking back over her very long career of charting and justice, she found that a striking proportion of it was conducted against women. So I think there's an implication that there's somehow there's misogyny in, in the power structure that allows this to happen to women in a way that perhaps men are, are protected even in these societies in which she's seeing injustice is really operating through the government and at the heart of the law. It, it's a book with a purpose and it's asking us to become more aware of the ways in which our own government is implicated in this in which a lot of these atrocities that that begin uh like the female genital mutilation is is largely 
a practice that's carried out outside Britain, but a lot of it is happening. There are apparently cutting parties in Manchester, uh, which are largely ignored by the police because there's a sense of it's, it's sort of people bringing their customs with them and, and therefore uh, they shouldn't interfere. So I think she wants us to become more aware of the way that these are happening and to closer, uh, closer to us than we might think and to put pressure. Uh, are Lloyd Roberts, uh, are those case studies for the FGM chapter, are they, are they up to date or are they a few years old? Because... I mean, perhaps very naively of me, I thought I thought that Britain was quite good on this. I mean, you hear about squads going to intercept people at airports uh, during school summer holidays to to prevent them going over and, and being cut. Uh, mm. Or pres- presumably that's charity led rather than government led. I think it is, and certainly there's more. I think I mean, Sue Lloyd Roberts is, is one. Of, she made a, a film about FGM, which I think was was instrumental in raising public awareness of this. And so I think certainly it's changing, but. I think still compared to, say, France, Britain is is somewhat behind. I, I think we've also had only if there's been there's either been one which was nearly overturned. There's been one successful prosecution for FGM ever in Great Britain, and so the the notion is that although people might be aware of it, the willingness of the state to go into communities, find out that it's happening, arrest people for doing it, and successfully prosecute them, is one where we haven't necessarily had brilliant success yet yes and i think it's hard i mean when she describes the customs in france it's very much that all small girls are subjected to yearly investigations to check that nothing has changed and i think she, she rightly says that in britain we wouldn't really countenance that and i think there's a kind of tension in in that respect in that i feel like in a way sue lloyd roberts would countenance that if it's if it's what it takes she says at one point that she, she believes the ends always justify the means, which is a dangerous thing to think, I think, and certainly you wouldn't get that in our reporting book, but I can also see how she was able to get things done, she was able to make these films, and, and certainly that attitude would does have more of an effect in France than it does in, in Britain. Whereas Lara Porson's book, it's it's very different, it's, it's more existential, um, and so what does that sort of leave us with? Yeah, I mean, I, her favourite writer is Beckett, and so I think there's certainly no clear agenda here she's not asking us to do very much but i think there's a sense that ambivalence itself is is a kind of political position and that simply questioning our notions of violence our notions of war is a way to move the world into a better and more reflective direction does she i mean effectively is one conclusion because she says she's only ever experienced sexual violence in britain so it's an it's as much a western problem as it is an African or other societal problem is is the conclusion one inevitably has to, con- to to draw is that violence is endemic to to humanity. There is something within humans that that sadly heads us towards violence, potentially, particularly towards women. It's a book in which every statement is is contradicted somewhere within it, and that's the sort of nature of the texture, I suppose. So I think a statement like that is somehow too clear. Um, and certainly she's very angry about the corruption of governments in Africa and the way that those impulses are less easily curbed there. I think it, I would think she would say it, was a, it wasn't a sort of statistical normality that, that her incidences of violence occurred here. It may simply be that she approaches life in a different way and, and, was more, and put herself in situations where that was more likely. Although governments can do what they can and wars can be somewhat more avoided than they are there is always going to be violence and it will resurge and both of these books attempt to 
to create a link between what's going on over there and what's going on at home. So Lara Pawson in, in, in her comment that sexual violence she has only experienced in Britain and then um, in Sue Lloyd Roberts book it's in in a chapter which is I think I think you mentioned it was added on after uh, Sue Lloyd Roberts death uh, in which she sort of brings it back and creates a, a, a she sort of makes it so that the inequality between the sexes here is an, an echo of the, the violence that is happening abroad. Yes I mean I, I, I say in my review that the chapter was slightly unconvincing in a way simply because of what it follows that I don't think we can get that worried about mm. she talks about the pay gap between the bin man and the care worker and it's hard to sort of get worked up about those problems when having heard about all these much more horrific things but um, certainly she sees Britain as, as participating in, in some kind of misogyny I suppose and she complains about the fact that the country that brought us Emily Pankhurst has now become I think the 18th country in, in the equal pay so there is a sense that Britain needs to to do what it can. But I think her indictment of Britain is more compelling when she's talking about the ways in which it turns a blind eye to these more barbaric practices. Mm. Finally, Laura, we began this podcast talking about misogyny towards Hillary Clinton. We got a big piece in, in the paper about that this week. Do you think that this what this book shows, or can we draw any conclusions about, is there a new type of misogyny or are we actually just recognising a a sort of a, a blot that's always been there and we might just be talking about it more as Hillary Clinton revealed something that was always there in American society but we can just focus on it a little bit more when you read books like by Sue Lloyd Roberts you're just focusing on something that, is, that has always been there. I think that's right I mean I think misogyny has been revealed in America at the same time as racism, racism has been revealed here and, and in both cases they've been underlyingly there all along but suddenly a movement or a moment has, has given people a chance to, to say it openly. But certainly, yes, these books show that it's it's somehow inscribed in the structure of, of many societies. It's a lo- lovely piece. I'm so, so grateful for you for, for doing it. It's, a, it's, a, it's the most shocking thing I read in, in, in the paper this week, particularly your discussion of, of Sue Lloyd Roberts' book. So thank you so much for doing it and for coming on to talk about it. OK, thank you very much. Thank you, bye. Bye. I, I find I have a radio programme. We often talk, you end up talking about the treatment of women. Mm. And funny, I've had so many people call in and say, you know, when I'm walking down the street, someone grabs me. Or my wife texted in to say, uh, every time I walk down the street, someone beeps their horn at me and shouts something. Which kind of suggests to me, I haven't really thought about it properly, that there is just this level of aggression towards women that's just there and it's become kind of normalised. So when Hillary becomes the prism through which you look at America, you just see some stuff that's always been there, but most people don't think about it. And that's why it can seem problematic, which is what I was sort of trying to get at when you draw this kind of equivalence between what's going on over there and what's going on over here, because there is no equivalence, but it is part of this enormous scale, sliding scale between... Um, you know, the misogynistic treatment of, of someone who's running um, to become a leader via censorship, which, as Human points out in his piece, George Bernard Shaw has said that, that assassination is the most extreme form of censorship. Uh, and then you get back to, to what we're talking about here, um, which is extreme violence towards women. There is there is a scale. It's 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 all part of the same thing. It's just obviously... And it's kind of depressing because it yeah. just, therefore it feels something that's almost archetypal rather than something that's contingent and that can improve it feels that every time you look mm. at it you're just seeing another aspect of it which is obviously completely the wrong way to be about it because as soon as you, you, you yeah, start you to allow it, yourself yeah. to feel that it's hopeless then you stop so you just start by doing the small things that make a difference yeah and she and, and laura's conclusion is so this is the conclusion to her 
piece, Sue Lloyd Roberts' book can awaken us out of a torpor. Mm. Though a book is unrelenting, it's also unignorable. And, and maybe that's the lesson from all of this, is just thinking about it, you might improve something Exactly, which is why I think it is important to see it all as a sliding scale, because as soon as we realise that the smallest, the, the sort of most minute uh, detail on that scale is our day-to-day, and you change that, then you're one, one tiny, tiny step closer towards improving the way that we see women treat women, etc. Yeah, that's that's probably an optimistic note. To, uh, <laughs> You've got to. <laughs> You've got to try. <laughs> OK, <laughs> to leave it on. And that's almost all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank alongside there, of course, our guests Elaine Showalter, Jonathan Barnes, Human Barricat and Lara Fagel. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the tier list. And review us. You and, always forget to say that. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> review, please, review, only nicely. Please review us on iTunes, particularly... Uh, I'm not sure that you can do reviews anywhere else, but please review us there. Uh, this week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Tom's startup on philosophical approaches to happiness, Helen Hackett on a new theory about Shakespeare and the longer versions of his plays, Peter Frankopan on a critical biography of Stephen Runciman, DJ Taylor on a forgotten novelist, and Adam Mars-Jones on Ken Loach. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including Jeffrey Wasserstrom on popular culture in today's China, Daryl Jones on how horror has shaped our imagination and our reaction to this week's Booker Prize, and whether or not the Booker is important. There anything on Booker? Do you care? A little bit. A little bit. I'm I'm interested. To see her I'm interested. I think it tells you something about literary culture at the time, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and as Thea says, review us on iTunes. And I've got a couple of other things to tell you about. Uh, come and see us hosting, not literally Thea and me, but the TLS is hosting a special series of events at King's Place in London on the 6th of November at the London Lit Weekend. Speakers include Mary Beard, Alan Hollinghurst and Francis Wilson, and there's going to be sessions on Shakespeare and Cervantes, the birth of Frankenstein and an attempt to name the most under and overrated authors. You can find out more about that on our website, and as I've said, there'll be a special spooky podcast this week. Do you like that? It no. Sounds a bit bow selector. Yeah. Me? All right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I was kind of channeling <laughs> that. Yes. Go. Special spooky podcast this weekend for Halloween. Thea will be reading a story by Edith Wharton. I am going to be heroically tackling Dracula, and the Doctor Michael Keynes will give us some M. R. James. You can come back and listen to that later in the week, and please come back next week for some more TLS voices. Until then, from Thea and me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.